Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24, and 36 through 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God has called to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. Thanks. Good morning. I was speaking with uh, an acquaintance not long ago who clearly said he wasn't a believer and who was wrestling with it. He was a seeker, but he was struggling with it some. And he said, I, I don't know that I can become a Christian. I mean, when I look at all the things that have been done throughout history, bad things in the name of Christ, things like the Crusades and the Inquisition, or when I look at the church and keep hearing about all these different problems and moral failures and all kinds of things. And I look at the people I know and there's some unbelievers that are a lot nicer than some of the Christians I know. (laughs) What about creation evolution? (laughs) And so forth and so on. He had lots of questions, but, you know, as we talked... Uh, I'm not saying those aren't good questions, and in fact, I did my best to answer them for him. But as we talked, it became clear what the real issue was for him. The real issue is always, in fact, Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? What are you doing with the historical reality that God sent his son into the world to live and die and rise again? And he now sits as Lord and Savior today. That's always the question. (laughs) What will you do with Jesus? You see, God has so arranged life that it all comes down to that. What will you do with Jesus? That's true for unbelievers. What you do with Jesus will determine your eternal destiny. But it's also true for believers in Jesus Christ as well. What will you do with Jesus today in your life? If he is truly Lord, Lord of heaven and earth, and he's truly the Messiah, then that makes a claim on your life. Is he truly Lord or is he just Savior and little else to you? 
Today in Acts chapter 2, Peter gives the first evangelistic message for this new little community, the Church of Jesus Christ that was birthed at Pentecost, as we saw last week. And in his first sermon, 3,000 people came to Christ. Talk about an uh, urgent facilities problem. <laughs> Where are we going to find enough chairs for everybody, right? <laughs> and as we look at this passage, we all will be confronted by that very question. What will I do with Jesus? Let's pray, and we'll look at this passage together. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing book of Acts and how it details the birth of the church. And as we think about this first evangelistic message that Peter gave, when so many lives were given over to you, Lord, there's such amazing truth as we're confronted with the reality of who you are and with that question of what we will do with you, Jesus. So I pray that as we go through this passage, your spirit would open our hearts to look at our own lives and ask, what really are we doing with you? Change us, Lord, by your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Peter begins this amazing sermon that changed so many lives, he begins this way, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God himself performed. He clearly starts out saying, look, you need to look at Jesus, people. He's got all these Jews gathered around him. It's Pentecost Day. The crowd has just seen the, the Spirit poured out tongues of fire, and they've heard the, the Word preached, the mighty deeds of God in their own dialects, in their own tongues. And Peter says, hey, God has attested Jesus to you. What will you do with Jesus? You need to realize God has attested him. Now, why do I use that word? It's obviously in my translation and maybe in yours, but, but why do I stick to that word? What does it mean? Well, I couldn't think of a better word. It, it means literally to prove to be true or genuine, to give evidence for. It's the root of the same, our word testify or to test something to make sure it's, it's true or genuine. And Peter is saying God has testified to the truth of who Jesus is. He truly is Lord and Messiah. He really is the only God. God has proven this to be true. Now, when you make a statement like that, God has proven this to be true, in our culture today, in our postmodern age, Many people will hear something like that and they'll say, well, that may be true for you, <laughs> but truth is all relative. It's all based on your own perceptions on how you look at things. Uh, there is no absolute truth. There's nothing outside of us. It's all in your own mind, etc., etc." Well, brothers and sisters, I just want to say that that philosophical bent that is ruling a lot of people's minds today is simply foolishness for several reasons. One, to say there is no absolute truth. Think about it. That is an absolute statement. That is a claim of absolute truth. How can you say there's no absolute truth? You're making a claim of absolute truth. 
Foolish, isn't it? And besides, to say that reality is only in your own mind, if that's the way you tried to live, you could never survive, right? If you say, well, that brick wall over there uh, is just a perception of your own mind that's not real, so I'm just going to walk through it. Well, you're going to be dealing with a bloody nose pretty quick, right? Because there is objective reality. And so when God attests to who Jesus is, he is giving us objective reality, historical reality about who Jesus is. He's giving proof. And how is he attested to Jesus? Five different ways in this sermon that he gives us, Peter gives us, how God has attested to Jesus. First, in verse 22, he says he's attested to Jesus by the miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, speaking to this Jewish crowd standing there at Pentecost. In other words, God attested to Jesus, proved him to be true by the miracles that Jesus did when he walked around on earth. Now, remember, Jesus had only been crucified 50 days before this sermon happened. This crowd, by and large, had seen Jesus do miracles themselves, or if they hadn't seen it, they had certainly talked to eyewitnesses. There was a buzz going around Jerusalem at that time. And so clearly uh, there was people knew that this was true. They could not deny the truth that Jesus had done these miracles and that God had proven Jesus to be truly who he said he was through the miracles he did on earth. But Peter doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Oh, and by the way, God also attested to Jesus, proved who he was through the resurrection. Verse 23 and 24. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, the Romans, and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So Peter says, oh, and by the way, God proved who Jesus was by the resurrection, by raising him from the dead. And this crowd could go to the tomb and see that he was no longer in the tomb. (laughs) And of course, Paul later says over 500 people at one time saw the risen Christ. Many of the disciples saw him. I I like the way Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 15. As he talks about this, verse 6, he says this. After that, speaking of Jesus, he appeared as the risen Christ to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, Paul's writing that, 1 Corinthians, 25 years later after Pentecost. But even then, most of the people were still alive that had seen the risen Christ. There was a historical reality that Jesus was seen by many. And as Peter talks to this crowd, he knows that they have evidence right before their eyes that Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter is talking right now only 10 days after the ascension. Jesus was walking around as the risen Christ only 10 days before this. So God attested to Jesus by raising him from the dead and allowing many to see the risen Christ, to attest, to prove who he was. Third, God attested to the proof of who Jesus was, Peter goes on to say, 
verse 25 through 31, through the Old Testament scriptures. Now, he just quotes one passage, Psalm 16, and then he goes on to another. But he, he um, could have quoted many passages in the Old Testament, but he picks this particular one because of its emphasis on the resurrection. David wrote a thousand years before Jesus came and was crucified. But he says this, David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter explains this passage by saying this, brethren, speaking to this crowd of Jews from all over the world, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ of Messiah. So Peter says, oh, by the way, this passage, David clearly did die and was buried, so he couldn't have been speaking about himself. It was prophetic about one of his descendants who would be Messiah, who would sit on the throne and would not be abandoned to death. And that's Jesus. And so Peter says, God attested to the proof of who Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. He just picked one passage, as I said. But Peter could have gone to many, many others. And if you, if you want to just know even some of the passages that Jesus fulfilled in his life on earth, there's several studies out there. One that's incredibly thorough is Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. I mean, you can read that and you can just see how many Old Testament scriptures Jesus fulfilled through his life, death, and resurrection. So Peter says, by the way, Jews, this crowd, God attested to the proof of who Jesus was through the Old Testament scriptures. But he also, number four, attested through the testimony of the disciples themselves. Verse 32 This Jesus God raised up again, to which we, the disciples, are all witnesses. They were standing right there. They had seen him. They'd walked with him. They'd seen him die. They had seen the risen Christ. There they were speaking in different tongues and dialects with the Spirit of God poured out on them. And they were speaking of God's mighty deeds, especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ, proclaiming what they had seen. Now, for us, okay, we weren't there, but we have the writings, the New Testament, the writings of the apostles who saw Jesus. All the New Testament was written by the apostles or by those who talked to them as direct eyewitnesses. We have the eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ. We can trust that God attested to who Jesus is and the proof that he is Lord and Messiah through our New Testament as well as the Old Testament. And then fifth, Peter goes on to say, and by the way, one more thing, God's proven who Jesus is by what you're watching today, the Pentecost. 
the Spirit being poured out. Verse 33 and following, where he says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So Peter says, hey, you're seeing a miracle right before your eyes. You're, you're hearing the, the mighty deeds of God spoken in your own dialects. You've seen the Spirit poured out. Let me explain it to you. Jesus ascended to God's right hand, and he has poured out his Spirit on us to prove who Jesus is. So Peter says... Through miracles, through the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the disciples themselves, through the outpouring of the Spirit, God has shown who Jesus really is. And he says this is who he is. He has declared him to be both Lord and Christ, both Lord and Messiah. Now, you need to understand how radical a statement that was. I mean, to call Jesus Lord in the Gentile world, where many of these Jews lived and came from, was to say he is above the emperor himself because to be part of the Roman Empire, to be a citizen, you had to declare Caesar as Lord. So to say Jesus is actually Lord said Jesus is above any earthly empire. He is above all of that in the Gentile world. But in the Jewish world... To call Jesus Lord, the only one who was called Lord in this kind of context was Yahweh himself. That was the name for Yahweh. And so for the Jews standing there on that day, Peter is essentially saying Jesus actually is God himself, Yahweh himself. And he's Messiah. He's Christ, the anointed one, the savior of Israel and of the whole world, the only way to God. He is all in all. And if he's truly God and truly Lord over the nations and truly Messiah, then that makes a claim on your own heart, no matter who you are in the world. To say Caesar is Lord meant Caesar had a claim on your life. To say Jesus is Lord means Jesus has a claim on your life that you have been bought with a price. And so the question becomes, what will you do with him. But in this passage, it's clear what man has done. <laughs> All of us, every one of us, we've rejected him. Peter puts it this way in verse 23 again this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You, Jews standing here today, nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And then down in verse 36 at the end, this Jesus whom you crucified. You, Peter says, crucified and killed him. Now, we have a hard time with this, I think, in our individualized society in which we live. Um, we might say, wait a minute, I didn't do it personally. No, I, you know, I was maybe part of the crowd or whatever, but there's a clear sense of corporate guilt in what Peter says 
Yes, the Roman soldiers nailed them to the cross, but you're the ones who caused it. You're the ones who caused it to happen. You either complicit in it by either calling for him to be crucified or simply by your rejection of him. By your rejection of him. We'll get back to that in a minute, but I I do think a couple of verses here kind of raise a question, a theological question that I want to just touch on, just address, and that is this whole question of God's sovereignty versus free will. Obviously, we're not going to resolve it in a couple of minutes, but notice verse 23 where it says, God predetermined to put Jesus to death, but you are responsible because you nailed him to the cross. Down in verse 39, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Wait a minute. Where is God's sovereignty? Where God predetermined it, but man did it. How can man be held responsible if God planned it all along? How does this work? Well, again, I'm not going to solve it completely, but it's interesting over in Acts 17, verse 26, the same word for predetermined is used where it says in a speech by Paul that God determined where nations would live and set out the boundaries of their lives for every nation on earth. I think that gives us a picture of God's sovereignty, that God sets the boundaries of our lives to make sure his plan is never foiled, that whatever he predetermined will happen. But we have free will within those boundaries to act, to choose. We have freedom within those limits. Now, I know it's hard for us to understand this. The Bible teaches that both these things are true, God's sovereignty and man's free will. God is truly sovereignly in control. His plan cannot be thwarted. And yet we have free will and are responsible for our choices. Now, I know this is hard for us to understand, but it's important we keep the tension. Tim Keller puts it this way. Jesus's death, speaking about this very passage, Jesus's death was the result of God's foreordination. But the people who killed him were guilty. Here are two crucial biblical truths that must be held together. Everything we do is part of God's plan, yet we are never coerced and are completely responsible for our own actions. Without the first truth, God's sovereignty, we are stressed by believing it's all up to us how our lives go. But without the second truth, man's free will, we will think our choices don't really matter. Why is this so important? Well, I've seen it very practically in my own ministry. I had a man come to me who said, uh, I need help. I said, what, what's happened? He said, well, I went to a, another pastor and I told him I was struggling with lust. I was struggling with sexual purity, having a hard time. And he really believed in God's sovereignty to such a degree. What he told me was this. Just stop fighting against it. God's sovereign. He'll change you when he's ready to. He came to me six months later and he said, my life has gotten 10 times worse. My addiction has completely overtaken my life now. You see, if you overemphasize God's sovereignty and you forget man's free will and our need to choose, then you end up in trouble. And in the end, you end up not feeling like you need to share your faith because God's in control. He'll save who will save, whatever. Whatever. 
It doesn't matter what I do. That is not biblical teaching, brothers and sisters. But if you overemphasize man's free will, then I've run into a number of Christians who are overwhelmed with guilt and pressure and anxiety and insecurity about their salvation, about maybe they've committed the unforgettable, unforgivable sin. They take too much responsibility for their own lives and for the lives of others. So we need to keep those two in tension because the scriptures do that as well. So Peter says, you're guilty, you Jews listening to me. But what about us? We weren't there. That's 2000 years ago. But, you know, Jesus himself makes a comment about us. And we could go to a number of passages, but I'm, I'm looking at John chapter 3, starting at verse 18, where he says this, Jesus speaking, He who believes in him, in Jesus, in the Son, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. He's speaking of every human who's ever walked on the face of the earth that we have rejected him. We've all rejected Jesus and therefore we are all responsible for his death on the cross and we are all in ourselves alienated from God apart from Christ. So, how will you respond to him? Well, notice what happens, how they responded in verse 37, as Peter very clearly says, hey, God has proven who this Jesus is. He is Lord of all. He is Messiah. How do they respond? Now, when they heard this, verse 37, they were pierced to the heart. Stabbed is the word there. Stabbed to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, What shall we do? They were convicted because they'd been confronted with who Jesus was. That is the issue for every human being on earth. What will you do with Jesus? And they'd been confronted with who Jesus was and they were convicted. They knew that if Jesus is Lord and Messiah, that that made a claim on their lives. And it's how I respond to him that is truly the issue for every human being on earth. So how does Peter explain then what's next? Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. This is for everybody. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter says, Repent. Repent just means make a change in direction, turn, change your perspective, turn from the way you've been living. And he says, be baptized. Baptism was an act of joining the Christian community and declare yourself to be a follower of Jesus publicly. And the result will be your sins will be forgiven The barrier between you and God will be taken away and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. What you've just seen poured out on the disciples, you will be part of the community of faith as well, Peter says. You'll be part of this new community, this church, this people of God. 
So the question for every one of us today is, have we done that? Have we repented, turned from running our own lives and given our lives to him? God has intervened in human history and has absolutely proven that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. He makes a claim on our lives and we need to respond by repenting and turning to him. Only he is Lord, only he is the way to God. Now I want to address one other aside here that's raised here, another theological question, and that is, okay, what he says here in verse 38, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the Spirit. Do you need to be baptized to be saved is the question. Do you have to be baptized to be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit? Now, there are some church groups, some theologies that teach that. But I just want to say, if you go on in the book of Acts, Peter, in a sermon in the next chapter, (laughs) chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, says this. Therefore, as he's giving another evangelistic message, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. In order that times of refreshing may come from the Lord from the presence of the Lord, and he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Notice no mention of baptism there. Another sermon of Peter over in chapter 10, verse 33, 43, excuse me. Chapter 10, verse 43, Peter says this, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives Forgiveness of sin. So in both those instances, he doesn't include baptism. It's clear in Peter's mind that that's not a necessary action for salvation. Why does he include it here? Well, think about it. He's there with all these Jews. And in the Jewish world, no one was baptized unless they were a Gentile who was converting from their pagan ways to Judaism, and then they would baptize them so they could become proselytes, God-fearers. So Peter says, you all need to be baptized as proof that you are changing proof, outward proof of the inner reality that you have moved from Judaism to Christianity. They knew what that meant, so that's why he tells them to do that. Baptism is simply an outward expression of an inner change, an inner reality. Think of the thief on the cross, right? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't have a chance to be baptized. But in the early church, it was normal to be baptized. That's what people did. A little later, chapter 8 of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch commits his life to Christ. And he says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? Let's find water and do it. So it is the norm. It is a public statement that I want to be part of this new community. And let me just suggest to you, if you've believed in Jesus and you've never been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do that. I think it is a wonderful statement, public statement, that is powerful for you. It's a testimony to your own self and to others that you are truly committing yourself as a follower of Jesus. At Cole, we do baptisms at various times, but we do have it scheduled on a quarterly basis. 
We baptize in our baptismal. We actually have one scheduled next week. We have some baptisms already, but we would include you if you want to be baptized. So call the church office tomorrow if you want to next week. Otherwise, we'll have them quarterly. But if you want to know more about what we believe about that and our position on baptism, there's a position paper on the back wall. I encourage you to pick up one of those and read it. So in verses 40 and 41, Peter makes a final plea. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse, twisted generation. The Greek word for twisted there is scolios. Sound familiar? You've heard of scoliosis, a twisted or curved spine. He says, this generation, this world is twisted. Its thinking is twisted. Its values are twisted. You need to be saved from it into a whole new community where you can begin to think about life the way God wants you to. So be saved from this generation. Save yourselves. Turn to Jesus. And when he appealed to that, verse 41, so then those who'd received his word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. If you haven't given your life to Christ, please do. But what about if you have? How about if you are a believer? Well, I think this passage raises some questions for us about what you will do with Jesus. I think many of us struggle to have Jesus truly be Lord of our lives. We may have walked with Jesus for a long time, but we might have compartmentalized him in our lives and not let him be Lord of every area of our lives. I I realize we're always growing, but I want to challenge us to think about your own life and what is Jesus really Lord of? Think of it this way. Think of your life as a house. Is Jesus still on the front step? You may go to church. You may be religious. But maybe you've never actually opened the door to your life and even let him in. Is that you? Is that me? (laughs) Or maybe Jesus is in the garage. (laughs) You know, you go out to the garage when something's broken and you have to get some tools and you have to fix it. Maybe for you, Jesus is just someone you go to when you need something to be fixed in your life. God, I'm hurting in this area. God, this is hard. God, whatever. And that's the only time you ever go to him. He's trapped in the garage of your life. Maybe Jesus is in the closet. (laughs) You've let him into your life, but you know, you kind of got busy with other things. So you kind of put him away for a while and you kind of forgot he was there. So he doesn't really impact your everyday life and your thinking and the way you look at life and the choices you make. Maybe Jesus is in the study. You love to study the Bible. You love BSF and Bible studies and growth groups and all that. And you love the study part. And you meet with Jesus there. But in terms of your decisions and how you live the rest of your life, he doesn't really impact a lot there. But man, you sure like getting to know the Bible better. Maybe Jesus is only in the study. Maybe Jesus is in the bathroom. You only go to him when you've kind of made a mess of things. (laughs) And you know you need to be forgiven. 
You know you need him to wash you clean. You know you need him to take care of the waste in your life. But that's the only time you really go to him. He isn't really Lord of your life. You know, we could go on, I think, but you get the picture, right? Or is Jesus not just in every room of your life, but is he really in your heart in a way that your your desires, your thinking, your decisions are more and more being shaped by Jesus because he is the Lord and Christ? Do you carry him everywhere in every room of your life? Have you been stabbed to the heart in a way that you've truly repented In other words, is is God controlling, is Jesus controlling your money? Not just 10%, all of it. Do you look to him for decisions on how you spend every dollar you have? Is Jesus Lord of your time? Do you look to him for how you spend your time? Is he Lord of your hopes and your dreams, your desires? Do you submit those to him? So that he can begin to shape your desires to match with his. Do you learn to long for him above everything else in the world? Do you let him shape your desires, your heart? Is he Lord of your relationships? Do you submit your relationships to him? Or or are there areas that you don't let him touch? No, I will not be nice to that person. They've hurt me. No, I will not forgive that person. Oh, I'll forgive him. I just can't stand him and I'm not going to be around him or whatever. Is he really Lord of your relationships? I think that's the challenge for us as believers today. Peter declares to these Jews that Jesus is proven by God to be both Lord and Christ. So the question for every human being is what will we do with Jesus, if you haven't given your life to Christ and have become a Christian, become a believer, I plead with you, don't put it off. God is calling you right now to himself. The promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. And he is calling you right now. My dad was 72 years old when he finally heard God's call. He would rejected God all his life. And he finally heard God's call. It's never too late. Pray now to receive Jesus. Just open your heart to him. And if you do so, please tell me, tell another pastor, so that we can help you begin to walk with Jesus as Lord of your life. And if you already know Jesus, ask yourself, what areas have I not surrendered to his lordship? And give those to him. He loves you and wants to be Lord of every area of your life. So you might be whole and complete and be truly all that he created you to become. But that comes as we surrender those different rooms and parts of our lives to himself. God has made him both Lord and Christ. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, you've made it so clear who Jesus is. He is Lord of all. Lord of the nations. Lord of the universe. Sovereign over all. But the real question for each one of us is, is he Lord of my life? Have I surrendered my life to him? Both ultimately and day by day. 
May we be people who reflect you to the world around us because we are learning more and more to surrender ourselves to you, that you might live in us and through us, that you might truly show yourself to be Lord and Messiah. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.